And so our business, we actually, we're going 20 to 30% this year. First idea of Alice was, can we build a guest app for hotels? One is, it sounds simple, but not, we didn't give up, right? It took a lot of time. Some meetings are terrible. Justin came back from a meeting once and then he said, how'd it go? He said the hotel general manager said to him halfway through the meeting, so when is your boss arriving? <laughs> and I'm going to guess everyone, because I feel it, everyone probably thinks they're a fraud. Like it's very easy to sit there and like say that you don't really know what you're doing. And, and the truth is not, no one really does. It's, okay, we've got this big $20 billion giant who's just offered to invest $7 million or $9 million in us. A lot of founders have tunnel vision. They think something should exist in the world the way they want it to exist. Well, mm -hmm. our pitch was, listen, you have an app. It's going to make you more money. You're going to connect with your guests. Our apps are cool these days. Everyone wants them. If you let us partner with you, we'll give it to you for free. Easy to get dis disheartened because you're looking at Uber and you're saying an overnight success. Well, that's not true, right? It took years and it took most people turned down Peloton. You don't know anyone and you feel like an outsider and it's um, humbling, but also it's intimidating. COVID happens, we had to make, you know, we had to let go of 40% of our staff in, in the space of two weeks. We had to fire people for the first time in eight years. We did the process and we actually pulled off the deal two hours before I got married to Whitney. Oh no, we've lost, we've lost him. Hello everyone and welcome to Babylonia Media and our very first podcast series, The Entrepreneur's Experience. When they're starting off on their journey, entrepreneurs love being surrounded by other creative and energetic people working in flexible workspaces. So it's very appropriate that this series is sponsored by Spacemade. Spacemade transforms buildings to create enjoyable and immersive working spaces for entrepreneurs and remote workers alike. We in Babylonia have a space at one of the locations and have found it a great environment to work in. Spacemade has accessible workspaces throughout the UK. Check them out at www.spacemade.co. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. So, let me start here. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Entrepreneur's Experience. I think this is episode 10? I think it's episode 10. Uh, this episode, in fact, this series is sponsored by Spacemade. Spacemade is a commercial property company that transforms buildings for landlords, making immersive and enjoyable workspaces across the UK. Their website is www.spacemade.co. For this episode, we are joined by Alex Shashu, co-founder and president of the Addis platform. Founded in 2013, Addis is a hotel's operations software that streamlines operational efficiency for hotel staff and within the different departments. Alice is now in over 2,000 hotels. Is that correct? It is 2,000. Right. There was two figures on that point. Um, in the US and worldwide, is that also correct? About 60 countries. Has numerous ho uh, hotel tech awards, including best place to work, best concierge, so, uh, concierge software, best preventative maintenance software, best guest, guest app, and top staff task management and collaborative platform. Alice is also the brand official staff operations technology for Forbes Travel Guide. Alex himself has also been awarded a hospitality, financial, and technology professional uh, president's award and the Hotel Experience Next Generation Leader Award. It's quite an achievement, Alex. So the first question Thank is- you, Mike. You, you are hired onto our sales team. Yeah, 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 don't worry, the, the PR's on its way. The first question is, who did you have to pay off to get all those awards? Uh, you know, the funny thing is, awards are very much given to those who try to actually go out and get them. Uh, yeah. You know, so every, everything, I mean, it, it's, you know, at the end of the day, the award company is a company and you, you 
have to apply and then you have to get your customers on and you, you have to deserve the award in the first place to qualify and then you actually have to work and get them. And um, it's not a vanity product. At the end of the, you know, we, like every other company, our job is to find people, retain good people, make them feel proud to work at the company, give them recognition for the work they're doing. And so it's an important job of our people team and our executive team to get our company external validation that make our clients want to work with us, mm-hmm. that validate our clients working with us, and ultimately our, our staff and make our team proud and give them something they can show their you know, husbands and wives and kids that says this is a real company and look at the good work we're doing. Um, yes, it's actually interesting you say that because I was, I was going to start with a different question, but I think this seems you, you went with that. Let's, let, let's start with this. You're obviously, as a president, you're, um, from what I understood, you're quite quite involved in particular with the sort of brand culture and the brand ethics and, and managing the different departments. You seem to get, have been recognized a lot for your brand culture. And, and I know there was, I, I think I read something that you're basically rated as one of the best places to work within hotel tech and, and, and overall. How important yeah. is that to you? And, and I, I guess, how did that come, up, come about? What, why, why did you come across it? Was it a case of you looked at other companies thought this really makes sense? Um, so just, just elaborate on why, why it's so important and why you've emphasized it so much, I guess. I think, so if we rewind, what is every company doing, right? I, I think we've very much based our company on the fact that we're at the end of the day, we're a people company. And I think most companies are, you know, we'll sell a different product, we're in different industries, but at the end of the day, we hire people, those people come to work, they build product, sell product, right? Create marketing. And that's true of every company. And today it's a very, very competitive landscape. You know, people have a lot of choice of where they work and where they stay. And it costs a lot of money and time to find and retain good talent. And we focused on that. You know, it's as you grow, if you're losing people, it makes it that much harder because you're spending all your time replacing them. And I know some CEOs who have people walking out the door every two weeks and it's in their entire focus, they can't focus on the business, right? Because their business is retaining their talent. Whereas for us, I think at Alice, what made us really successful in the first, let's call it five to seven years, I think in the first five years, we lost five people. I mean, a record low amount of turnover in today's world where you know, most people are doing a two year tour of duty, yeah, if two that. Two people is absolute max, yeah. Right. And we can get into that and what we did. And I think we did a lot, but ultimately at the end of the day, we just spent time focusing on how do you create a good environment for people to work. And that starts with hiring the right people in the first place. How do you create a really good hiring process? How do you, you know, make people proud of the company they work for, make people feel recognized, give people the right work to do, give them autonomy to do that job. Um, You know, pay is really one small piece of it. Right. If you pay yeah. fairly, there's totally other agree. places that will pay fairly. I was going to say to you, actually, do you think there's maybe four or five fundamentals you have to focus on to get that right? Or variables that really you really have to consider? And, and what are they beyond the pay? So the, the most important thing is hiring. And it's easy to say, but you hire internally motivated people who are a good culture fit. We can get into what that means then the rest is a lot easier. If you don't, it becomes a lot harder. And hiring is hard. You, everyone is selling themselves in an interview. You know, 
people are great interviewers, people are bad interviewers, you have your own biases that you have to get around. And so hiring is very difficult and it's very difficult to know if someone's going to work out after just spending 10 hours with them. And most companies don't even have the time to spend 10 hours with them, which is- I was thinking that 10 hours is quite a, quite a long interview process, really. I would argue that most people who work at Alice will tell you that it was very, very painstaking to get the job. Um, but I think it works. It makes them want to get it. I, there's no way Alice would hire me for what it's worth. Really? <laughs> I would never pass our interview process. For sure. Not a shot. But um, that, that's and the, the other variables. That's who you are as well on a, on a different point, really, really just being a leader. But, but I, I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, just... Look, and then the other variables I think are um, giving people the autonomy to do their job. Um, we can get into what that means, right? Letting people develop and become a master of their job, mm -hmm. right? I think, of course, paying people fairly is a variable, but that's kind of like, that's the baseline, everything else. Once you, once you get through that, then every, everything else is focused on. Um, we, we created a very transparent culture. I think part of joining a startup um, is at the end of the day, you get to learn other things, right? So a lot of people come from these big companies and then come work for us. And what they get out of that is they get to do their job, but also see other jobs and other roles. And we've had people jump between sales and products and products and customer success. And I think if you create this very transparent culture, people can kind of learn and create this learning environment mm -hmm. and, and they get a lot out of that. And that means we can you know, bring in some brilliant people who've done some brilliant things in like finance and technology and, and they'll come and, They'll do a whole new thing, but with the same kind of mental skill set they have. Um, and then at the end of the day, as they always say, people join leaders and leave managers. And so, you know, you have to, and we don't do a good job of this, but at least we do, I think we do a better job of, of supporting our managers than we do of training them, but we do a far better job of training them. And that's a, that's a big jump. Do, do CVs matter to you that much? Is it, or is it a small percentage of your consideration? So, so let's rewind. So at Alice, I have two co-founders. One is Justin and one is Dimitri. Uh -huh. um, and it does matter to me, but the reason is Justin runs the business. So he looks after revenue, sales. Alice was ultimately his idea. He's in charge sure. of you know, our investors, raising funding. Um, traditionally, what a CEO does is what Justin does. Mm -hmm. Dimitri is our uh, technology genius, right? He, he's, he's the gray hair of the three of us. He'll kill me for saying that. He, <laughs> uh, he's a student of process. Sorry, my series started. He's a student oh. of, of, of culture, but he's also really, our tech, he runs our technology. And mm. I would actually say that he does a lot more than that because he seriously cares about culture. And he's, I think he's trained me the most on how do you build a good company um, because that's what he's interested in. Mm -hmm. And then there's me and I, I run the company. And as a startup, that's like your COO type person. I, I think it's almost like you take a bucket and you run and you, you hold it under wherever the roof is leaking until you find someone to come and fix it. And then you go to the next place. But ultimately it meant running our people operations. And so I spent a lot of my last eight years focusing on that. In the Nalice, we grew pretty quickly, but to about 150 people. Um, and so we had to think about this, right? You have to think about what does the company look like at 10 people, at 30 people, at 70 people, at 150. Uh, now, with COVID now we're back to, I think 90 people. And sure. so you kind of, it, it does take a lot of work figuring out people operations and it can't be overlooked. And, but, but, but touching on the CV, going back to the CV point. So for you, it does matter, but overall you're not really, uh, 
do you all take a interest in each employee or is there different different sort of decisions based on what sector it is so i think as a small company and you know i think google became famous for this is the founders can be part of a hiring process for every individual right mm -hmm. there's no reason i mean so we're 150 people we've probably hired about let's call it at this point now 200 250 people throughout that journey sure. right, over eight years um that's that's a lot of people on the surface, but it's not that many that you can't have a founder on every hiring process. Um, and we used to start the hiring process, I'd say. So we would do the first call, right? When you're, you're first, let's call it 30 people. Now we're just at the end of it. Now we're kind of like, they've gone through the hiring process. Our VP team, which is really the, comp the, the management team that runs the company now, their job is to hire great people and they run a hiring process. And then we get on at the end and we say, okay, it, do we agree with their hire? And it's usually always yes. It's just a culture, culture interview at the end, really, and a kind of alignment. Like, well, why do you want to do this? What is this a stepping stone for you towards? Right? You have to not assume they're going to work at Alice for the rest of their career. What is that? If you're successful, at Alice, what's it giving you that you want to do next? Sure. Just yeah, see yeah. if everything aligns. And um, you obviously you talked about the the fact that you went you jumped jumped to staff quite quickly. When when were the very sort of high growth years where the staff the staff sort of massively increased and and what would you put that down to so i would say every startup has is kind of like this right you have these leaps and then you have these slower years and slower months um so i think it took a while to begin um like very slow at the beginning and, and most if i don't know who's listening to this if it's a founder who's thinking of their company and it's easy to get dis disheartened because you're looking at Uber and you're saying an overnight success. Well, that's not true, right? It took years and it took, most people turned down Peloton. I mean, Peloton couldn't raise money if you've ever listened to their podcast, right? Mm -hmm. And it takes years. And so I would say the first, we started this in 2012. We both were, I was at Goldman, Justin was at City with two other co-founders, friends of ours who had different jobs as well. Ryan, who's now actually starting his own company. Um, and Julie, who's just cr crushing it in, in the VC landscape as a partner at Elephant. And it took nine months of just talking about it and researching and speaking to hoteliers and, and trying to find a CTO. That, um, sorry to cut you off there, but that, that's 2012, you're saying? This is 2012. This is nights, weekends, toilet breaks. We're working in the day at our real jobs. We're working on Alice, which at the time was called accomplice which before that was called easy traveler um yeah. and it's you know it's a lot of conversations there's a lot of validating your idea and the first idea of alice was can we build a guest app for hotels you will meet people who still believe because they don't know anything about us that we still build a guest app for hotels because that's what we first set out to do i think my dad still might think he can't turn a computer on yeah yeah <laughs> so you know, that was the first, and eventually we met Dimitri and he was consulting with companies, what we call the ideation stage. This is, you have an idea and then how do you take it from an idea to creation? And that takes a lot of time. It's really slow going at first because you're really architecting out your idea. Think of it like building property in real estate. You're building the plans and you want to put really good plans in place before your builders show up. Because if you just have them show up, much like a builder and there's no plans, they don't know what they're going to do. And the same is of developers. You can't just say, hey, developers, here's my idea, let's build this. You know, you actually need to put the, the drawings in place. And because no one's built your house before, those drawings take time to figure out. Mm. And so it's very slow. 
And then you raise some funding and you suddenly accelerate a bit and you get your first, in software at least, you get your first customer pretty quickly. If you, you know, you're knocking on doors, but software, you don't need a really strong product to launch your first Fine customer. To, to experiment with it. Uh, I would, on that point, how long did it take to develop the sort of first stage software that was actually usable? And then on top of that, to how long after so, did you get a client? That, I was quite interested in that. Like how long would it would have taken that, that process? Cause you know what you're saying about how people like listening to this, if they want to start seeing up realistic and don't think it's some smooth trajectory, that those points would, would become really valid on, on that particular. So we yeah. graduated from Penn in 2000, summer 2012, started working on the idea, mm -hmm. um, pitched. We actually, I remember we hired a, a, des a design team, maybe some, we hired a team in India, paid them $8,000 to build us a sketch of what we were going to do and a hotel app that you could click around. Nowadays you have Envision, Mm -hmm. So a designer can very a designer can very quickly build you a functional app. It just doesn't do anything because it's just sure. a bunch of pictures. But if you click here, it's, it's basically a scope of work. Um, so we did that and we started pitching hotels. And I would say I think it took seven months. And our first hotel said, "Yes, let's do that. We'll do this." Well, mm -hmm. our pitch was, "Listen, you have an app. It's going to make you more money. You're going to connect with your guests. Our apps are cool these days. Everyone wants them." It's called service on demand at the time. And you, if you let us partner with you, we'll give it to you free, right? But a hotel can't just say yes. It sounds so simple because they have a reputation. They have a brand. If, you, if it doesn't look good for their customers, they're going to do themselves damage. So eventually we, fit, we got two hotels to agree to do this with us. With those two hotels, with the scope of work, we went to friends and family and we raised some funding. And that was in March. And then we started built, we hired a development shop in Ukraine started building it with Dimitri's help mm -hmm. overseeing the project and then launched our first customer in October. Now was our first hotel was the, uh, was the Atlantic in Fort Lauderdale and the Hudson in Nashville and then the Satai in Miami beach. Mm -hmm. So we launched them in October. So that was what a year and two months, a year and three months. Yeah. And then the first paying customer was the Satai in March afterwards. So we didn't get a paying customer till a year and a half. Now you can do it a lot quicker than that. We were, learning it and we spent a lot of time up front trying to figure out what to build so we didn't waste time after the fact yeah it's it's, it's interesting it took that long but I, I, that doesn't sound to me from other people i've spoken to like a crazy crazy amount of time it sounds sounds about right and i was thinking you know when you talk about the the startup sort of concepts in in general what's very unusual i guess about you and, the, and is, is that this was pretty much your first startup and, and it hasn't failed dramatically, like sort of drastically. Most people have quite a few failures before they get, they get to, you know, a good, pro good product or, or a good business. Is there anything, I guess, you could put that down to without, uh, you know, in, in, other, in simple terms, you've obviously done it very well and you're particularly detailed and meticulous, but were there particular things you reckon you did like t on certain turning points where you thought, okay, this is why we didn't absolutely fail and, and, and basically it never end up being a proper business? Yeah, um, I think it's a great question. The, I don't know if it's a certain thing. I think it's a, it's a series of small things. Right? It doesn't happen overnight. It's a series of really small decisions that you, you make with good judgment um, that lead to your success. But maybe some big turning points for us. One is, it, it sounds simple, but not, we didn't give up, right? It took a lot of time. Some meetings are terrible. Justin came back from a meeting once and he always said, how'd it go? And the hotel, he said, the hotel general manager said to him halfway through the meeting, so when is your boss arriving? 
thing. <laughs> and you know, like that's brilliant. Like, well, that's that's because what? So like, he was, he's he was because he was so fun. young. Yeah, yeah. He's like twenty three, and like this is our job general manager, sixty, and wearing a suit and tie, and. Sure, sure. So it doesn't happen overnight, but I think a few things is a lot of founders have tunnel vision. They think something should exist in the world the way they want it to exist, but then they put it out into the world and the consumer says, actually, this is how it should exist. And they say no. Right. And so our example of that is, and how we started this story was we thought we should build a guest app for hotels. We went and launched a guest app in hotels. And then what we observed was actually no guests wanted to use it. They didn't care to download an app. But what started happening is our app started getting used. And what was really happening is hotel staff were pretending to be guests using it. Right. And that was really odd, except when we asked them why, well, what we'd just done accidentally, because our app needed to order room service and housekeeping maintenance, and because maintenance room service and front desk weren't on a piece of software, we needed to put iPads at each department. And once we put iPads at every department, suddenly we'd put the first communication software between each department. And so if the front desk got a housekeeping request, instead of tracking down housekeeping, all they had to do was go into the app and say, housekeeping, clean room 202. And suddenly housekeeping had that request. So we were getting guest requests, but staff were putting them in. And so we, we very quickly that night built on our back end, which was meant to just receive guest requests. We created an add internal staff guest request button. Mm -hmm. Right. That button allowed hotel staff to send requests for the guest around the hotel. That button's become our entire business. We no longer have a guest app. We just have that button. That button's become everything. Right. Because now Alice today is a hotel operations platform, which just means it's what housekeepers and front desk and concierge and maintenance all use to, to communicate internally and track all their work. And a guest can still pick up the phone. They can use apps. They can text message in through different pieces of software, but it always ends up in Alice. Mm -hmm. So we didn't have tunnel vision and a lot of founders do. And I think that helped us be really successful because we were able to change course into the real need. Do you, do you think that connects the tool to, I, I read something that you said, you really have to understand what causes people to use your product. Do you think that's, yeah. that's connected? And, and, and could sure. you elaborate on that particular phrase and, and why you think that matters so much? Well, so if we were steadfast, and I was, I, I'll give Justin the credit for it. Mm -hmm. If we were steadfast on building an app, um, and it took a while, it took three months to kind of say, okay, let's not do the app, let's actually build the staff platform. We would have built a product that, that might or might not have been successful today. Whereas if we just looked at what our software was being used for and said, okay, that is what the customer is telling us they want, let's focus now on that. And that's the beauty of software is you can change it overnight. And so um, I'd say then later on, when, when you're bigger, what you can look at is what we call net promoter score. So your NPS. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a very simple question. I think it came out of Deloitte and Harvard research that says the best way to, to figure out if someone likes something is to ask them one simple question, which is how likely would they be to recommend it to a friend between zero and 10? Because if you start, say, do you like something, people are inherently going to lie to you or they don't know. But if you say, would you recommend it to a friend? And they would, then you've got your referral, right? And that's how. And so what we do now is we track our NPS on every user and we see where, which departments do we have lower NPS? And then match that to which departments are we trying to be successful in this economy? So for example, with COVID, suddenly housekeeping is really important. Maintenance is really important. 
and we're saying, what is our NPS? Is, are we doing good in those departments? And how can we you know, spend more time interviewing them and understanding what they really need today and then developing into that? Um, in, in layman's terms, just, just to clarify for people who, who obviously won't know what your app is, what exactly does your app do? Okay, so Alice is uh, a workflow tool. So what does that mean? Well, um, simple examples. If a guest calls down to the front desk and says, hey, I need an extra pillow. Simple, pick up the phone in the room. The front desk in Alice will go extra pillow room 202. And they'll put it in Alice and Alice will send it to the individual who's delivering pillows. That's usually the house the houseman. They'll be on a, on a phone. So the front desk was on a computer in Alice. They'll be on an iPod in Alice and they'll get the request and they'll say accepted, delivering, delivered. Right. So they'll track what was typically put on radios, pen and paper, sticky notes. And that's what we call, that's a workflow tool. Now the hotel moves from um, not knowing what's going on in the hotel to knowing everything that's ever been asked of them, how long it takes. And also if the houseman then gets another request and they forget about the first one, we'll remind them. So that's really simple. And then where it gets more complicated is, okay, now you've got this light bulb and that light bulb should be checked every six months or this air conditioner should be checked every three months. Consumers don't need to worry about that at home because you should check your filters, but if, you're, if your air conditioning breaks, it's expensive, but it's not like 5,000 air conditioners breaking, right? So we, hotels actually have a maintenance team that needs to go around and check every system every so many months to keep up the system. And so that way they don't have to big, have big cap expense. So that's the automatic workflow in Alice. We put every asset in the building into Alice, we create a schedule for maintenance. And then the more real-time algorithms that happen is, okay, so now you've got a hotel, You've got 50 guests checking in today. You've got 20 guests staying overnight and you've got 20 guests checking out. Well, that means all the bedrooms need to be cleaned in a certain order based on checking and checking out. And we will create housekeeping algorithms that sends a board to a housekeeper. So on their phone, a housekeeper now moves from having a piece of paper to having a phone and they'll say, okay, I need to clean room 202, then 203. And as they're doing it, they'll track it and we'll tell the front desk, okay, 202 is clean now, you can check the guest into 202. So we're just moving all of the hotel happenings off of paper, off of radio, into software, which then makes the hotel far more efficient, far more profitable, far more on top of their game. They can have less staff and do much more. How did you come about the idea and, and, and where did you see the gap, gap in the market or the, or the opportunity? Because, because it's... For me, what I find interesting, and a couple of other people I've spoken to about this uh, or, or interviewed, interviewed is that you and, the, and one person in particular I spoke to were very, I'd say, ahead of the curve or ahead of the game on, on recognizing, recognizing the issue and recognizing the opportunity. So I guess how did it come about and why, was it, why did you go for it so quickly, I guess? Um, well, I think to start, so my father, my, the background is my father actually built hotels. Uh, so he built the two hotel brands in the UK, Malmaison and Hotel Divan. So I grew up in the hotel world, but that's not, I don't think really that has anything to do with why we started it. I think Justin, want, Justin had could, the idea. Sorry, just quickly on that point, because you never really envisaged being in hotels. I'm, I mean, I know it was early in your working career, but you obviously were working at Goldman, that sort of thing. There was mm -hmm. no, there was no real, oh, I'm going to do hotels. It was very much, you saw something in, in the flesh, a, a tangible situation, right? 
yeah, I think Justin had an idea that, hey, we should build an app for hotels because that's what's happening today. And, you know, hotels haven't updated their communication structure in many, many years. You get on a plane, you book a hotel, you don't speak to them. You get on a plane, you arrive in a foreign country in a foreign language, you wait at the desk to check in. You know, at the time, airlines were doing a lot of innovation around checking in before you arrive, picking your seat, skipping the desk. It's like, well, why can't we do that for hotels? Mm. And then you start diving into an industry and you start realizing why that can't be done. And it's because they don't have the infrastructure for it. And so I guess you find a problem, you find an industry and you find, and then, and then you start working on solutions for that. And I think our problem might've been the guest app, but what it really was is how do we improve the guest experience in a hotel? And our industry was hotels and technology. And you know, we're still improving the guest experience for a hotel. We're just doing it through the staff lens. So I think just you dive into an industry that's big enough and you, you spend a lot of time. Do you think starting a business or entrepreneurship in general is all about problem solving? And that's everything from recognizing a problem to day-to-day trial and error. Yeah. And these problems have existed for a long time and, and people have done this before us, right? Everyone has usually done your business before you. you you're just using new methods to solve the problem a little bit better. Right. I mean, Google wasn't the first search engine, right? And well, we had Yahoo before. We've still got Yahoo now. But. Right. And Ask Jeeves before that. And, yeah. and so I mean, before Alice, there was housekeeping software and there was maintenance software and there was concierge software, but you had to go and buy all of it. None of it integrated. It was all archaic. And we came out and said, why don't you just have hotel operation software? It's one yeah. system for every department. And speaking, I mean, thinking, I was thinking about this with Alice, like, you obviously have made elements of hotel service much more, much more efficient, right? That's basically what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was just thinking about technology in general, and there's obviously this suggestion with certain elements of, of technology, especially social media and all that sort of thing, that we've gone from being quite facilitated to actually dumbing down experiences, right? So if I could parallel that into the hotel world, what would be, you've, you've done the right things. You've made it a more efficient service, um, and, and you have, I, I would assume no one's really lost their humanity. The, the humanity hasn't been lost on a service point of view. For me, a hotel, it's so important to get that, that the beauty of the service and, and, and enjoy it and be, you know, set, talk to in a, in, a, in a very almost gracious manner, almost like a royalty. I know you, you, you actually quite have, a, uh, quite have a big passion for hotels in general. What are those things that you think will never be lost through technology? Those, 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 those unique, almost intangible moments within a hotel that you think are so important so uh, that question alongside i guess what would connect to that is what really stand makes a hotel stand out in your opinion yeah well i think like everything software is software and technology in general is only as good as how you use it right and so at the end of the day we're not the ones delivering smiles right we're not delivering a towel a person is or we're not you know help checking someone in a person is um we're just helping that person be a, a ton better at it. And so, and we're telling them where, where to go and being able letting them be more human, right? If they're spending less time in the back of house, figuring out what to do and more time with the guest, there's more humanity there. Right. And so, um, what's an, what's another example? Okay. If you can track that Mike Barkley Smith stays in our hotel once, once every year, let's call it, let's pick a wide time frame because you're not going to remember him if, He's only here once a year unless we help you. And he sleeps on the left side of the bed and he eats Skittles and likes red wine. And it's like, 
If you have that information, there's so much more human things you can do, right? You can set up the bed on the right side of the bed for you, the little things that matter. You can deliver a bottle of wine with a note that says, this is the wine we had for you last time. I hope you enjoy it again if you'd like something else, right? Like these little things that you will now tell the story of this hotel that said they, they knew who I was and they made me feel like someone special in a world where we're all not, not that special and we're a bunch of numbers walking through a door. And I think that's, that software can't do that. But if, it, if there's a human who wants to do that, they can leverage the software to actually achieve it. Um, so big segue, really, but do, do, you, do you think entrepreneurship and subsequently sort of leadership is an innate ability or something that can be learned? Learned. Completely? Yeah, I think I, I, I'm, I'm going to guess that unless, I'm going to guess everyone, because I feel it, everyone probably thinks they're a fraud. Like it's very easy to sit there and like say that you don't really know what you're doing. And, and the truth is not, no one really does. You just have, you have a bunch of information and you, you make decisions based on it. And I think leadership outside of all the normal things, it's just helping people make decisions. Mm. You have a lot more context than they do about the company, about what's happening across the company. And I feel like most of our job is helping people make decisions or challenging people's decisions to make sure they have conviction in them. And then where they can't make a decision because building systems that lets them make the decision next time. And, and that's our entire job. At the end of the day, leadership's not scalable, right? You can't be everywhere at the same time. So you just have to uh, help people figure out and help the company figure out how to make the right decisions. That starts with culture, that starts with values, that starts with um, good training, good process, good documentation. And ultimately, like giving optimism, giving people confidence that that they're ma they're making a right decision. And like, there's a bunch of right decisions as the truth, and just make one and move on. Like, if we st if we're stuck, we're not going to move on. So, for example, Justin get telling a, sal a salesperson, "Hey, don't worry about the price on this one. Just get the deal done, because we'd rather have the deal than not, right?" Or us saying to a customer team, like. Hey, it's okay that if they, if they, if this is what they need, you know, you have the ability to do that. Don't worry that that's not what we wanted. Ideally go out and make it done. And like, as long as we make a lot of, a lot of the right decisions, we'll get there. It's, it's so interesting. You say, say, um, and I totally agree with you that everyone almost feels like a fraud a bit. Um, I've talked a lot before about imposter syndrome and especially when it comes to employing people older than you. Did, did you get a lot of that, especially when you're employing like quite a lot of people? And I know exactly what you mean in the sense, because you're not the most perfectly well-equipped person with what you're doing, because you're naturally not going to be 100% of an expert in it. You start to feel a bit bored. And then this, I can put this sort of follow on to that is I've talked a lot about imposter syndrome before, especially when it comes to employing people when you're a young, young entrepreneur and you're employing people much older than you, um, or at least a bit older. Did, did you feel that a lot? Was, was that quite a... How was that experience, I guess? Because I think it's so important for people to really, especially young, younger, younger entrepreneurs who are aiming to, to do this sort of thing, to understand that imposter syndrome is natural, but do it in the right way and you'll have no problems with, with employing people older than you. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's hard. So we were 23 when we started the business. We're in an industry that, like every industry, most people are not your age. But you, I'd go to a conference. I'd be the youngest guy there. Me and my friend Richard from Muse. Mm -hmm. and you don't know anyone and you feel like an outsider and it's um humbling but also it's intimidating 
Um, and then you also, you're making decisions and you're not sure, like the truth is you have to, I think you have to just work a lot harder up front to spend a lot of time researching and building conviction in your decisions, right? So we say this to, we used to say this a lot to young employees at Alice, which is you're, you need to stop going with your gut, right? No offense. This really is not meant to insult you, but your gut, like just assume your gut's wrong because you've never done this before. Instead, go find someone who's done this before, go find three of them because this has all been solved before, figure out how they solved it and then make an informed decision on how we should apply what they've done to ours. And so for example, we, um, we had a team of five and I remember uh, at the time Jonah saying he was hired from our team in the customer support division and basically ran all of our customer operations um, and now works at Google. But he said to Dimitri, like, how do you have the time to read this? I think Dimitri was going off on one of his lessons of this and that and from something he's read. And Jonah was like, I don't have the time to read that. And Dimitri came to us and said, I think we have a problem, which is if, if our employees don't have the time to read about what they're doing, how are they going to do it right? They're making wrong decisions because they just don't know any better. And we're not giving them the space to learn to make it better. And so we created a book club as a foundational element of our culture. And the entire design of this book club was, listen, we are doing things that people have done before. For example, we are hiring people. Hiring is being solved. There are fantastic hiring processes out there. There are thousands of hours of experience in hiring. So don't walk into an interview with never having learned how to hire people. And so we read a book together on hiring. It was called Who by Jeff Smart. And we read a lot of books after that. And the book club would take this process. We read a book, but don't assume everyone's going to read it. Then we have a session. You have to come to the session. You don't have to read the book, but you have to come to the session. In the first half of the session, we're going to teach you everything we learned in that book, in case you weren't there. In the second half of the session, which is the most important half, we can say, okay, now we all know how hiring works. What do we want to take and apply to Alice? And we did that with sales. We did that with product. We did that with culture. We did that with you know, decision-making. Like it goes on and on and on. And the whole point was go out and learn from people who've done this before and then adopt that method and then innovate on it. So you can go, you can go from being a fraud and an imposter to actually just being a copycat and then becoming really good at it and learning how to adapt it to your own way of doing it, right? I think and that's, that's how you go from being a fraud cool. to an expert. But you did that is, is, is amazing. I don't see that happening a lot. And it, and it goes down to the point of, you know, people always talk, not people always talk about it, but something I've learned is that preparation is, is key because once you find the right opportunity, you need to be ready for it. And I think that's what you were, you were really educate, educating there. Um, do, do you remember when you, when you first, the first time you looked at the business felt, oh, this is an actual business now? No, this is not just, this is not just, this is not just a, a, a you know, a bit of a whim or, or you're messing around. When, do you remember when, when that first was and what, what was it? Was it something quite tangible or, you, or something you saw with the figures or, or whatever? Yeah, so, so we started off speaking a bit at the beginning of this hour about like those, like when do you make those leaps? Um, so the biggest leap we made uh, outside of, you know, getting your first customer was in 2017. So quick history, we, we raised 500,000 in 2013. We then raised a $3 million seed in 2014 and 15. We used that funding to keep growing. 
and then we would go, we needed to raise what what we call a Series A, so the next round of funding. Um, we ended up um, so actually sorry, this is 2016 or something. We ended up speaking to a bunch of companies, a bunch of VCs, and figuring out like what's the best path. We thought at the time that sales was really difficult. It's very hard for us to get into these hotels. These hoteliers are not online. They're not on LinkedIn that much. There's no online communities for, for hotel operations. You know, housekeeping software is not sexy and they're not online. It's very hard to speak to. Mm-hmm. And so we ended up speaking to a lot of strategics. And I think two years before that, we got introduced to Expedia and to their CEO. He, he was a frat buddy of one of our investors. What year was it when you got in, introduced to Expedia? <sighs> I want to say it was 2015. Hey, speak to these guys. They're building an app. I'm invested in them. Dara at the time, who's now the CEO of Uber, said, yeah, thank you, but no thank you. Like, great, speak to this guy. So he push you down this way. And then Justin, like a dog with a bone, worked his way all the way back up through the rounds of Expedia to the point where now, I remember we got invited to sit in to meet with them and in walks the CEO, the CFO, the head of acquisitions. We were this tiny company with 200 hotels, you know, still having an app and some backend software. Um, and they, you know, quietly said, so, so what's the deal? And we said, well, listen, we're speaking to a lot of strategics and we know it usually doesn't go anywhere, but we're raising a round of funding and you have two weeks to submit an offer. If not, let's not speak again. Mm-hmm. And I was blown away that he said that. This is at the end of a meeting. There's a lot more context there. And I was like, wow, that guy has balls. And um, two weeks later, they presented a term sheet. And so I think that's when it started becoming really real because, okay, we've got this big $20 billion giant who's just offered to invest $7 million or $9 million in us. Um, but then the, the real big jump for us was two years later. We ended up doing the deal with him. Two years later, we were going for what's called a Series B. And we wanted to raise either 15, 15 million and use that money to get to profitability. But at the same time, one of our biggest competitors was up for sale. They were called Go Concierge. Yeah, I remember. So we saw the opportunity. Sounds very interesting. Yeah, so we saw the opportunity to really leap. Um, and it turns out it's actually easier to raise 25 million than it is to raise 10 to 15 million. <laughs> why, why, why do you say that? Um, it's just how investment works. So there are a lot of companies that will invest $1 million checks like VCs. And there are a few companies that will invest five. There's very few that do 15. And then it gets to, and then when you get to 25, it starts opening up to the more, the biggest cap, bigger investors like private equity and the bigger VCs, and they don't do anything less than 25. Mm-hmm. So like if you want to raise 15 million, you almost have to find three investors. But if you want to raise 50 million, you can find one. So yes, obviously it's, you need to, deserve to raise 50 but there's a bigger universe of investors who are willing to do that because if they're going to put capital to work and if they're going to do all this work they'd rather like a big nominal return so just instead of going out to raise 15 we said okay what if we actually try to buy go concierge so we need to now raise 25 use that money to buy go concierge plug the two companies together put all of their customer base on alice and we'll go from having 400 hotels to having 1600 hotels overnight and then we can go and back to all those hotels and upsell them and everything else we do. Um, and so we did that. We had a lot of, we, we did the process and we actually pulled off the deal two hours before I got married to Whitney. So I didn't <laughs> see her for, uh, for months before our wedding. Um, but literally pulled off the deal, went and got married and went on honeymoon and came back. And suddenly we had a company which had 
an extra so, thousand hotels. Producer Sam shaking his head. He's like, "Oh my god, I can't believe this. This is amazing." Yeah, yeah it, ma- it was amazing. We literally pulled it off, and actually to the point where lawyers just close us up because we are uh, we need to go get Alex married now. And and it's a funny thing because you ask why do startups be successful? Timing is everything. Yeah, and if if I hadn't got married to Whitney, we probably wouldn't have got the deal done before that on that Friday. That Monday, Dara, the CEO of Expedia, announced he's stepping down and joining Uber as the CEO. Wow. I promise you, if wow. we had not signed that paper on Friday, Never would have we were not signing that deal come next week. The company shut down to figure out what it was going to do about this leadership. And we might have pulled it off later, but it was not happening. So it's like timing's everything and, and sometimes you get lucky and sometimes you get unlucky and that was just a, an example of getting lucky. But I, you know, another example of getting the deal done. Lucky. I, I, I'm not big on luck. I think, I think, well, it, I think it's complete re- relentlessness. You know, for, per, perfect example, you were saying uh, your colleague, we got, you, got, you got introduced to someone high up in Expedia, you got pushed all the way down the ladder and went back up. These are the sort of things that get you in that position in my opinion. Right, so if you want to take luck out of the equation, let's call it if you are relentless at getting the deal done, so we're pushing to get the deal done, you decrease the amount of time it takes to get the deal done. You decrease the amount of time, you decrease the amount of time you can get unlucky, right? So you can create your own luck by decreasing your risk and de-risking your unluckiness, mm-hmm. right? So that's, there you go. So you call it lucky that I was getting married or, hey, we had, a re- we had a reason to push, push, push. And as a result, we didn't get unlucky. Mm-hmm. And, and how important, I mean, that, that sort of connects also my point about realistic targets and just realistic realism in general in the business do you I, I find for example i'm always having a target of a certain time timeline for any just anything simple like creating a piece of content or releasing it and it very rarely happens in that timeline and as a result i have to sort of let myself down get over it and, and, and move move forward how important is that incessant consistency of short-term targets connected to the bigger picture and and, and is that what you're going about? Is that your consistency every day that, that gets you up in the morning and, and, and makes you realize what you've got to do? Um, yes, yes, yes and no. So for our employees, we use a system called OKRs. It's uh, a Google framework. Say that again. Okay, objectives and key results. Um, cool. It was a framework built oh, cool. by um, John, I'm so bad at name, John Doe maybe, who put it in place um, at Google eventually, and then wrote about it. Um, And the idea is you have these objectives and you have these key results that that get you towards those objectives. Big objectives at the company level, key results that prove you did it. And a key result has to have what you're calling a time-based element to it Mm. by X. And what we do is when you say how reasonable or how reasonable do we have to do, we set very hard objectives, but then we call 70% success, right? So if we achieve 70% of our OKRs, that is success, right? Because if you're achieving 100%, you're not setting hard enough objectives. And if you're you're achieving 50%, then you ask, did we not get there or were they too aggressive? Interesting. And so that's how we answer your question of, well, what do we set reasonably? It's like, no, we don't hit everything. And also OKRs change. Like sometimes we'll set out to do something. We realize, okay, we shouldn't be doing this. Let's cut this OKR, move on to the next one. But that's the framework we use for aligning the company on goals and i will say with people who've done this it's really hard we're no we're not perfect at it it's a really hard process but the the idea is set objectives at this level 
and then everyone can say what do, what does the company achieve, and then how do what is how do I help the company achieve that, and then at the individual level they can see am I doing what's helping the company achieve its OKRs. At the team level, you're saying are we doing what's helping the company achieve its OKRs, and so at a very sophisticated level, every single person can have OKRs. We we don't have the time for that. So what we do is we just do it at the team level. Here's the, how each team needs to help the company achieve its objectives. And then are you in charge of making sure that that all connects together within different- Sam, Sam has, Sam who's our head of strategy has the fun of, of making sure that's all connected together. That sounds um, like absolute, I mean, what a task that is to connect all those operations and targets together, it must be crazy. But so Alice, we, have a, we had 145 employees, we're now 90 or so in 17 countries. So if you're not sitting in a room together, it's a lot hard. It's a lot harder to get aligned than people give you credit for. Yeah, yeah, we hired fully remote, so you have to spend the time helping everyone figure out what are they doing together and why. Otherwise, they're sitting at home in Ukraine, in India, in South America, right? Like figuring out like how do they know what to do? How do they have purpose in what they're doing if they don't know how it connects to the broader objectives of the company? So you have to take that time. Yeah, it's painful, and it takes a whole person's job almost. But if not, you have 90 people not rowing in the same direction. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it just blows my mind how big a task that is. Um, what, why did you, why go concierge? Essentially, why, why, did you, why did you feel like that was, you had to purchase that company? Um, I've, uh, sorry, not, before you tell me that, what exactly is go, go concierge? Just, just so people so, know. So Alice does software, for, like at the, via, at the very basic level, Alice sells housekeeping software, maintenance software, front desk software, concierge software, guest messaging software, but it's just all one platform, right? Mm-hmm. GoCon was the old version. They, they built one, one tool and that tool was for just concierge. They were just concierge software. It was phenomenal concierge software. And, and over 17 to 18 years with no process, just knocking on doors, Adam and Israel, who's brilliant, and his team, had sold this software to 1,100 hotels in 64 countries. So they were selling a piece of software that cost $400 a month to every, literally every four and five star hotel in the world. And they became the market leader in it. And then you have Alice, we do all of it, but to much fewer hotels, we had like 400 at the time. We said, well, we're growing really fast, but what if we could take that 1,100 hotel business, put it onto the Alice concierge platform, and then see if we can go back to them with housekeeping and maintenance and front desk and grow that business. And would that be a much faster way of, of growing? And it's what you call inorganic growth. And the truth was our sales cycle is really ugly. Selling hotel software, B2B software sales cycle, it's really ugly. It's slow, it takes a lot of conversations, it takes a lot to get someone to make a decision. And we could accelerate it overnight by buying this company and then going back to what is now our customer base with all of our other tools. And so we did that and it worked really well. And we spent a lot of time integrating the companies and the people and the customer base. And it was painful, but it was a lot, I think it was a lot less painful in growing to the size we needed to be. And it's completely accelerated us. It put us on the map. It gave us credibility. Um, and it's, it was a, what you call a roll-up strategy and it works really well in our space. And it doesn't work in every space. Ex- Expedia put money into you before you will go concierge. Is that right? Yeah. Um, so they did our A and then with the B, they helped fund the acquisition of Go Concierge. It was like a three-way transaction. It was yeah, like, I see what you're saying. And we were between them. We were holding this big giant and this like little mum and pup company. And, yeah. um, and like, you know, when you're, when you're the small company, you don't think about all these things this big company thinks about. So for example, an hour before we finished the meeting, we suddenly got told, hey, by the way, 250 of our hotels 
we don't have contracts for them. We can't find them. <laughs> and Expedia are like, what? We can't buy this company. Yeah. They don't have the contracts. And we're like, well, they don't, but none of these hotels have been paying them their bills on a monthly basis for the last seven years. So will we contract them? It's okay. And their lawyers wanted to pull out and we had to drag them back in. It's like, you have, you're just in the middle of getting it done. Um, I remember you saying to me when we spoke the other week that Expedia, it was quite unusual for Expedia to come and get involved with you guys at such an early stage because they're so massive. Mm-hmm. What, I mean, I just want to understand more about that. Why, why is that the case? And why, why do you feel anyway that Expedia did get involved with you at such an early stage, even though you were so small? Because as you said, to some extent, you were small fry at this point, especially for what the scale of who they are. So you have to ask them for the legal answer and whatever their approved answer is. But um, my viewpoint is uh, twofold that is slightly probably contrarian to what they'll say, which is, I think there's a, there was a humans factor and then there was a- A what factor? Sorry, I didn't hear that. A human factor and then a, a bet. So the human factor is, I think, let's start with the bet because this is the business one. Yeah, yeah. They had to give us 7 million or nine, sorry, 9 million to, to invest in a company and get, let's call it 25% of our business. 9 million is not very much money to them. It's a lot of money. I'm not discounting it. But it's not a lot much money to them. At that time, bookings becoming really competitive. Google are coming out with booking. Amazon are dabbling with booking. Their business, their core business, booking hotels becoming really competitive. But and, and their core business is awesome, but it has one flaw in it. The minute you book with them, you're no longer their customer, right? You, you, you they, they buy well, you. And become a direct, direct uh, customer to the hotel. They have no value for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, you, they spend all this money acquiring you. They help you book, find which hotel, you book it, and then they don't hear from you again. Like you're gone. Yeah. You're, you're going to the hotel. Maybe one day you'll come back and book. And so this period here is their blackout window. And, like, Alice, and that's where Alice starts. Alice, the minute you booked in the hotel, that's where we, the hotel can reach out to you and say, what can we organize, what restaurants, and all the way through checkout is what we get. And so there was this idea that maybe one day we could power Expedia through the full journey. And the reason it was just an idea is that we had 400 hotels and they have 460,000 hotels. Yeah. So the reality is it was too small to even start helping them in technology. But that was the, the bet. For 7 million, they could have a free option, free, on the future of what their business could look like. The human side, Expedia are awesome. And you have all these guys who are very entrepreneurial working at this behemoth of a company. Mm-hmm. Bunch of old startup founders, tech guys. I think they like startups. And I think they wanted something else. To, like I think we were this fresh, young startup and it was fun. And it was fun to work with. And we, they talked about us on stage and their tech, their leadership, is, they're visionaries. But like at some point, you know, you're in this big company. And I don't know if they'll agree with this, but you're in this big company. And because it's big, you can't make the decisions as quickly, right? COVID happens. We had to make, you know, we had to let go of 40% of our staff in, in the space of two weeks, right? Like Expedia just still doing it, right? I think... COVID happens, we built a free product in one week for all the hotels who wanted it to help them through it. Which was, so I think, which was what, sorry? We created COVID checklists. So like the hotels don't know how to close down. And we said, here's how you close down. Here's how you reopen. Cool. Most hotels aren't seasonal. They don't have 
the skill set of closing down overnight. Hotels never close. Suddenly I asked to close, not built for it. Yeah. So we gave them, we gave them free tools to help them. So the point is, I think there was this entrepreneurship thing and, and as big a company as they are, they're the most entrepreneurial big company I've ever met. And I think it was fun. No, I don't know if fun makes business decisions, but I, I think at the end of the day it does. Yeah, I guess the other part is people really bought into the vision. You know, that's, that's something sure. I'm trying to emulate in my own way within Babylonian media about the, the bigger pitch and what we're trying to do as the center of ideas. And I think if you explain that the right way and when I speak to people, people sort of buy into it. That's, that's half the struggle because if they, if they see it, they envisage the future, they sort of they get excited and, and you get people a part of it, whether it's investment or staff or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, and the people, I mean, Justin and Dimitri are each individually very, very, they're brilliant. And it's, you know, they're, they're very good at what they do. And like, I think that that comes through and you want to work with them. You mentioned COVID. I mean, how, how's, we don't need to overdo it because I mean, I'm sure it's been spoken about so many times and you have as well, but how's COVID been overall for you? And is it a case of, it's much more about you, you've gone to hotels and tried to help them or have you, have you suffered particularly yourself or whatever it may be? Yeah, I mean, so, so we work with hotels, hotels have suffered. A lot of our users have lost their jobs. Um, it's been tough. It, it's been, I'd say here, here, here's my favorite, my favorite takeaway from it is, is it's been really incredible to, to go through from a personal development standpoint. Yeah. We, I graduated in 2012, pretty young. 20, you know, we'd only seen eight years of up up, 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 everything is possible, everything is doable, spend to grow, 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 grow at all costs. Suddenly you have this overnight recession. It wasn't like the financial crisis for business. It was literally overnight recession. And- Self-induced as well, some people say. Maybe. And I, I would say that, you know, suddenly you have to question every decision you made about your business, how, how you're staffed, and make really tough decisions that you you forced into and you it's what's what someone coined a dog year you learn more this year than you did in the last seven and so that's been incredible to kind of go through um and that's the silver lining right we had to go through we had to fire people for the first time in eight years and we couldn't furlough people because they're in different countries and we're remote and there's no such thing as furloughing a remote employee sitting in a different country it's it's firing them um, and that's, that was really tough. Um, but I think we did it really well. We, we did it very openly, very honestly, very transparently to the point where almost they were apologizing to, to us for having to make the decision. Um, and we supported our industry. We built lots of free products. We did lots of thought leadership. We did what we could as a small company. And I think we'll come out a lot stronger, both from an operation standpoint, because now we figured out what is essential to run our business. We make you know decisions we didn't have to make before, and focus on our core business. And two, we'll come out I think with a stronger brand because we spend a lot of time helping our industry. Yeah, and, and you really took that time to go out your way to to help to help hotel brands and so on and so forth. You really got involved in the whole industry as a whole instead of just mm -hmm. being a service provider. Yeah, and it's a partnership. They helped us too. Those that could pay us paid us. Those that couldn't delayed. Those that couldn't delay didn't. I mean, it was very much like, hey, how can we help each other through this? Some hotels are suffering. Some hotels are suffering, but have a weekend business. Some hotels are seeing a lot of business because you know you, you, you have the domestic driving business around the city. The city hotels are hurting. So it's, it's kind of everyone is a different story and it, it's painstaking, but 
it, this was done on a one-on-one -on -one basis. We yeah. spoke to 90% of our customer base. I can tell you software companies don't do that. Our customer base pays us 500 to a thousand a month. It's not that much money with two and a half thousand of them. We have 70 people. It takes a lot of time to speak to 90% of your customer base. And that's what we did. And it was awesome. No, I'm, I'm sure that obviously connects with your culture within your company and what, and what the sort of human value you sort of, you, you care about within your client base. And do you worry about the hotel industry as a whole, as a whole moving forward? Are you all? No. No. What, no, people are creatures. Think, you, think, you think we've got short-term memories? You think people just want that service no matter what? Or what, what is it? People like experiences and they want to see new ones all the time. That's why we live and that's why we work hard. And hotels offer you that, that journey, that memory. You don't put photos on your, on your wall of this podcast we're doing, as, as great as it is. Like, we're not going to take a photo of this and put it on my wall. I'm going to take a photo of my wife in some country in somewhere. In my office, there will be a photo of you like this. <laughs> <laughs> Just so. But not in your home. And so, yeah, no, I, people, it's not creature habit. I think people, for the most part, once they feel safe, it's where most of their budget goes. It's where they're thinking about their holidays, their free time. Like people should work so they can live better mm. and living better includes travel. And then business is done, I believe is done between two humans and it can be done better in person than it can, can be done. You can do it online, we're doing it remote. It's working very nicely. But at the end of the day, it's not, relationships it's not are better formed in person. Here, sitting here and we were talking, it's, it's still amazing. We, We've got a good rapport, but I agree. It's it's all about human contact. Totally agree with that. Yeah, it's much more transactional when it's on Zoom. So um, yeah, I think the hotel the hotel industry will thrive, and actually, I think it will adapt. Hotel a lot of stuff hotels did didn't make any sense, and just like we had to do a lot of things that didn't, we were doing a lot of things that we didn't need to do. They'll stop too. Things will change. They will ask the question of, do you need some? You know, you carry your bag from your home to the airport to the plane. You know, you get it off the carousel, you get it all the way to the hotel, and then you have someone who helps you for the last minute. Do you need that? Not, most hotels don't. You know, you can take it up to, you've already taken it this far. Um, so, like, I think there's lots of things that you can change about a hotel that make it more adaptable to what people really want today. What's, um, just, it just came to mind, which is why, why I want to ask you, and we were talking about human contact. What, what's the most, like, What's the main human enjoyment you get out of running a business and being an entrepreneur? Could you, and what, um, what do you mean by that? You I like, mean, the, I think for everyone it's different. For me, it's uh, the people. So I really enjoy working with our people. We've, we've done a very good job of promoting from within. And so, you know, the team I work with, I've worked with for five, six years. Uh, they started with us, they came out of hotels started with us at the in support grew up now they're running a department and it's awesome uh, i'm like, about to, like to see people flower like that and and, and grow into grow into roles that's definitely definitely a good thing to see yeah i'm about to literally after this i have a call where i get to promote someone to being a vp um, oh, okay. which is, who's grown started at the low level you know like should be one of the youngest low, vps and then and entry rip, oh wow okay. be one of the youngest vps She'll be young, one of the youngest VPs probably in tech. Yeah. I, and she, and it's not like when you give it to yourself, I'm president, but I give it to myself, right? When someone else gives it to you, it's real. Yeah. Like you had to earn it relative to everyone else who could have earned it. And so it's real. It's awesome. 
And I think uh, that's what I get the enjoyment out of. Um, I think for Justin and Dimitri, it'll be very different. Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, I, I always ask that question because I, I do genuinely think it's, it's always quite individual, but there's, there's always a few common themes. Um, just, just sort of, I guess, ending the whole Expedia point and, and what's going on with Alice. What, what's, what's happening now and what's, what's going to go on in the next couple of years? Are you phasing out soon or, or, or what's the plan? Um, so, no, so we're on a great, we're on a great time which is, you know, COVID has been really difficult, but COVID has only accelerated the need for technology. And what I mean by that is obviously I'm biased and it's self-serving, but if you have less hotel staff and they have to do more, because, you know, you ask, do hotels still exist? Well, guests don't care about COVID. They go to the hotel and they want a massage and they want, like, they want you to be safe, right? They do care about COVID, but they're going to a hotel to escape COVID. They want everything and they, they want everything to be open. So you have all these services you're offering to guests, but now you have less staff because of COVID. You have less money, right? Um, and so software now can help you manage that in a way that it didn't, in a way that like accelerated from what it did yesterday. And so our business, we actually, we're going 20 to 30% this year. There aren't many businesses during COVID outside of you know, the tech, consumer tech and, and e-commerce that are growing 20 to 30% this year. And so I think actually now is a great time for us. Like we can come out of this so much stronger and there's this incredible few years ahead where, you know, the goal is to get to 5,000 hotels and to really build like the market leader, the, the, the forever company in the operations landscape. Um, and I'm excited for that. I think I can be very helpful to that. I can advise and help grow the company in that regard. Um, but I also recognize that at some point, maybe you also need some, someone who actually has experience too. And so it's all about bringing in the right people as well. So, I mean, I guess if you don't mind me asking, Alice is not forever for you. You've got, you've got other plans in the future, but you, do, you still... Yeah, I, I would say, I hope Alice is not forever. I would say Alice is, Alice is not forever for anyone, but I hope it is forever for our industry. Yeah, a brand, um, but not for you. All my hoteliers and all my staff know that like Alice is my only experience and uh, one day I'd like to do something new. Mm. Um, and I'd like to look back and say, we did something great here. And uh, for me personally, I, I'm, I've been investing in a lot of companies now, working with a lot of startups and you know, I'm really interested in seeing what a consumer company would look like because Alice is, is B2B, it's, it's business to business, it's enterprise software. And, and actually probably I'm better suited for enterprise software, but I won't know that unless I try it. Um, I'm having my first baby. I'm like, I think life, I'm excited for that. Yeah. And congratulations again. That's amazing. Thank you. Um, and I'm, I'm going to be super focused on that too. I want to be a great father. And so, you know, I think for everyone, they have, they have these, these phases of their life. Um, and Alice has been the last eight years of my life. Do you want to hotel, own hotels at any point in your life? Is yeah, for sure. Yeah. Cause, you, cause yeah. I feel like you've grown a real passion for hotels as you've been at one, been one piece of the pie in a service sense. Yeah. And I, I know the industry well, I know the people, I think it'd be a lot of fun. I think that's something that for me personally, I do in the late, in the later stages of my life. Yeah. There are a few themes that I see in entrepreneurs and we work with a lot of entrepreneurs through the startup leadership program in New York. Sure. Um, trying to go through the same challenges. Right. Um, and I think two of the ones that I wrote down, where I get a lot of questions around finding a co-founder. Well, funny enough, that's one of my next questions. How, how important is a business partner? 
Because I, yeah. I, I personally think, I personally think it's almost impossible to do a business on your own. You either have to have an early team that that really buy into what you're doing, or you've got to have a, a founder, a co-founder or two who really support you. Doing a business on your own must be so hard. I think it really depends on the individual. Some individuals are super, super, are very much suited to it. Um, do do you though? I, I think only in certain, only in certain type of businesses you can get away with that. I don't think it's, I think again, it's, I think it's some people just really thrive on their own and most don't. So, um, I would never do it alone. First of all, I think it's a really lonely journey. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't really like your partner's almost like your therapist, which is (laughs) how do you, who do you, you can't really complain about your customers to anyone. You can't really complain about your team. You can't complain to your investors, right? So who are you meant to do that with? It's other founders who are going through the same challenges, which is why you should join an entrepreneurship circle or pod. And there are lots of them. And your co-founder, like who's going to call you and say, he just said, when's my boss arriving? Or our investors just let us down or someone just pulled out of the deal. We just lost the deal. Like, you know, someone needs to pick you back up. Say, all right, on to the next one. Um, but then, you know, it's equally important. I will say that the number three, let's call it the number three reason companies fail is co-founder conflict. Number one, running out of money, right? Um, number two, not finding product market fit and then running product market fit and then running out of money. Number three, which is probably a byproduct of the first two, co-founder conflict. It happens all the time. It's very, you know, you spend more time with your co-founder than you, you do with your wife and family. Which, by the way, by the way, it's, it, it's another reason why it's so interesting that you've succeeded so well because you were so young. It'd be quite easy to make a bad judgment on a character, get involved with them for six to 12 months and be like, this person is not for me. And oh, think and about it in, in people don't relate it to analogous things, but how many times do you see people date someone and break up or even like marry and divorce, right? Like there's no difference with a co-founder. It's actually, you spend more time with your co-founder than you do with your life partner. (laughs) So, so I think something that Dimitri made us do, um, when we started working with Dimitri as a consultant and we said, eventually we said, listen, after eight months, it became his whole life. We said, look, join us as a third co-founder. Here's a third of the business. Um, and so there's two things there is we were not greedy with equity in our business. For us, it was, we'd rather have a success and a good 10 years because it takes 10 years to grow a business then have a, you know, we'd rather have a smaller piece of a bigger pie than a bigger piece of a smaller pie. I, I, sorry, I think that's two things that are so important. And that, that goes back to my relatable point. That's, that's what people need to hear, exactly that point. It takes 10 years to create a business and don't be greedy mm-hmm. with the equity, especially in the early days. Sorry, I just, I just yeah. want to reiterate that. It's, it's just so, so on the money. For sure. And I know some founders who, are, you know, bit, they maybe done it a few times and there is a time that you may be a few companies on that you, you can be a bit more protective over it. So I think there's a time and a place for everything. But if it's your first company, make it a success, not externally, it might not work out, but at least internally, right? And so Dimitri sat us down. I remember this exercise. So many people have asked me the questions. I've never found them, but I can, I would, I can create them off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. But he sat us down and said, listen, if we're going to do this for the next five to 10 years together, we better all align on what this means for all of us. And so we wrote up a list of 25 questions such as what do you want our culture to look like? Such as when would you like to sell this? If this was successful, what does success look like to you? What do you want to do in the company? Um, 
And we answered them all individually. And then we shared our answers with each other. And we sat there and we read through them and talked about them. And we figured out where people were not aligned, right? We figured out that Justin would like to sell after X years and Dimitri would like to do this forever, right? And knowing those things up front is super important because five years on, eight years on, you start seeing one gearing the company towards this, one gearing, and you know that about each other. Amazing exercise. Amazing exercise. I'm, Fantastic. I'm, I'm, I've heard everyone should do it. Not to that detail. I really haven't heard that before. Be super honest. You don't have to have the same answers. You need to understand where each other thinks and comes from, right? Dimitri was, had done this many times. He'd had lots of companies. He, he was 10 years older than us. He had a different perspective on what this meant to him than we did. Um, and I would say Justin was a complete opposite. So like, you know where everyone sits and it, it creates a much, much, much better partnership. And then you date, it's like dating before you married. You ask lots of questions of each other, right? Um, and I would say that that was hugely important in actually founding the company. And so many people overlook that founding alignment. Just out of interest, you miss London much? Just thinking yeah, that. yeah. I love London. So I miss Arsenal a lot. <laughs> uh, I miss my family. All right, let's leave it at that. <laughs> in that order. Um, yeah. And I think London's a great city. I, I tell you that I don't, and I, this is going to be unpopular, I don't think the English mindset is as good as the American mindset towards entrepreneurship. Yeah. So I always tell people, I think that, it's, it's and growing, I think you should- in the right direction. It's becoming much more open-minded, I think. Yeah, and, and you need to change this if you're listening to this, which is in America, anyone will help everyone. Everyone is feeding off each other's success. In England, it's not true of everyone, right? This is a stereotype, but it feels like people are much more jealous of their neighbor. It's much more old money. It's much more status quo. It's much more, it's much harder to break into that status. And, and I think that's a factor of England being a much more, a much older country with established ways and America being, you know, a couple hundred years old. And so everyone helped each other get there. And so I think a lot more is possible in America because of the mindset. I can call almost any CEO in any company and they will probably, if I'm genuine and help and make the effort, spend some time with me. And that is not true, I think, or I'm told that is not as true in England. No, I think you're and, right. I think you're totally right. I think that's definitely, it's, it's quite obvious. It's an obvious culture. You're totally right about that. But London is, you can't find a city like London in America. I always, if I could take all the Americans out of New York, put them in London, all the Londons out of London and put them somewhere else, I'd go live in London. Um, well, in the economic opportunity sense or just the fact it's so vast? Or? Just that, that like shared success mindset, that like getting together, helping each other through it, figuring it out together, you know, celebrating each other's successes. I think that is, that, that I mean, you talk about it in, in Silicon Valley and like these network effects. I think, the, I think Europe is still growing its network of entrepreneurs and its ability and investor base. And, you know, it's easier to raise money here. The thing is just, it's a lot harder to spin up a business in Europe and those who do it successfully deserve that much more credit. We've raised about 70 million to build Alice. And I think like that is, that is not as, that is, that's a huge, it took eight years and it's like really great, but that is not like in England, that's unheard of. Right. Um, whereas in America, you, you have more examples of that and, and that's going to change. It's already changing. Right. And it takes time. And New York was the definition of what, what of company value is much different. We're, we're, we're still in a very, 
which I'm not against, by the way, but we're still in a very profit-centric from day one attitude here, whereas America is much more about building to over five, 10 years. It is, although I will say that's probably one of the better lessons of COVID, which is you do need to focus more on it. I think we were caught off guard. So we manage our business to a concept that we called cash lowest point. Mm. So you raise some money, you spend that money and you make money, right? And you raise money and you're spending it and you're, you're growing, right? And you, you're trying to catch up for people who are listening to this. What I'm trying to say is you, if you, you raise money and you have a plan to spend it over two years, and with that plan, you need to grow revenues against that. And at one point, the revenues catch up with your spend if you're successful, right? And that's so it's called raising to break even, right? And that's what I mean by growing and spending, spending on growth, right? So you're losing money, but you're hoping to catch up with your revenues. Mm-hmm. And so we managed a concept in our model called cash lowest point, meaning let's not ever, as we get to profitability and get below 1 million in our bank account. Right. And now is what we said. Let's make our cash lowest point 1 million. So let's keep spending money and growing, uh, growing to the point where we overtake our spend at 1 million. And COVID taught us that's not enough. That buffer was not enough. That was for us, that was like a month and a half of payroll and it just didn't right. suffice. Yeah, yeah. And I think we needed more buffer. So I think the focus in Europe on profitability, I think that's a good focus. There's just not as many people who are going to give you yeah, there's not as much infrastructure that gives you the kind of confidence in the, in the investment to actually go after that profitability. How hard is it letting people go? Just, just on a side point. It's, it's, it's quite a, yeah. it's quite an experience. It's the worst. Well, I th- it's the hardest part is letting people go who don't deserve it. Who had, you know, it wasn't, this wasn't a, they didn't, they were not, what they did was not the reason they're being let go. What happened in the world was the reason they're being let go. And so you have to come to terms with it. It's part of being a leader, but there's nothing worse um, than that. And, you know, it's human. People have kids. We're not like, we're talking about, you know, at the very extreme, solo mothers with three kids, right? What are they, what are they going to do? And you, you know, you, you, you're unfortunately not able to answer that question for them. You can only help as much as you can. When you decided who you'd cut, like for example, would you? Was it? Was no. It, was it consideration age, or or was it completely ability and contribution to the to the business? You I, I don't. You yeah. Can, I'm sure not, some people you, in a smaller you, business might do that. You know? It's a very dangerous game. You have to you have to do it based on who's on business need, role, skill. Um. You know. For example, we're not able to sell during COVID, so we had to let go of some of our sales team. We're not able to launch, some, whereas we are able to build technology, right? So we, we don't want to let go of our tech team, but now we're, we have less money, so we need to have enough tech against the money, right? So no, you have, you have to do, you can't, as much as you'd like to, you have to run a fair process. Mm-hmm. And you have to be very honest with that process, and you have to kind of be honest with the people and very transparent, and we became very transparent. We were already pretty transparent, but we never really let people know where yeah, we were running the money. Transparent, regardless. But this is this is a whole. Other For the first time, we let we let people know when we'd run out of money and what what why we needed to make decisions we did and how we thought about the the financial model and showed them, like this is what we're not going to collect in revenues. This is when we hope we will collect in revenues, and as such, this is the decision we're making. And also, the big thing we did, and a lot of people did this, is we made it so we only had to do one cut. 
one ref um, reduction in force because mm -hmm. you want people never to be afraid for their jobs. So you, you make a bunch of assumptions, make them super conservative and do it one time because if you do it twice, you, know, you do it once, people understand. Like it, it happens. I'm, I really feel a lot of guilt. Guilt happens where you feel guilty that you kept your job, but your friend lost theirs. And that's a real thing. Yeah. And yeah. like, why did I get to keep my job? But if you do it twice, if you let people go twice, suddenly they get, suddenly the question is, when's the third one coming? And you, and you can't always avoid it because what happens if those conservative assumptions don't hold true? What happens if the whole world goes into lockdown again? Right? But be conservative so that you're at least avoiding it if you can. Yeah. So what you, you, you were looking, when you went conservative, you're thinking at least got to survive for at least a year if not year to two years as opposed to just it's just a few months for us it was not exactly when covid happened everyone thought it's gonna be a few months we said how do we make sure we get to yeah. we get to january yeah now things are looking up again the hotels are reopened i know uk is in lockdown but hopefully it's short term and our customers are back to paying our bills and you know we're we're growing hotels need our software and yes we're being more flexible we're saying listen We'll get you live now because you really need it. Pay us next year. But um, not only you can do that, but I'm sure on, on the hotel side, that's a massive, especially smaller hotels, that's such a massive appreciation. And that, that will keep them there for uh, yeah. longer, really, right? Uh, all hotel, I think big hotels have more bills, right? So like, yeah, I think it, I think it really helps. We have the, and for the most part, remember, that's a one-on-one -on -one discussion. Not every hotel is doing it. The only ones that need it, right? So I think it's a partnership. Are you, um, is it, was it smaller hotels at first or larger hotels that really went for you? Or was it very sp sporadic in the type of hotel that, that took you on? Uh, we started with ind independence, moved our way up to small groups, moved our way up to medium groups, moved our way up to big groups. And now by default, people just come to you anyway, even if it's a quite a small little motor. Oh, no, no, you always have to convince them. It's no, it's, it's a, it's a sale. It's a sale process. You need really good sales process. We actually, one of the regrets is not hiring a sales team earlier and figuring out sales process earlier. Why is that? I think we, we just thought we could sell it as founders, right? And, and so you can, but then you don't know what sales leader you're looking for. We hired a few sales leaders and we weren't like, we had some brilliant data sales leaders, right? But we didn't need a data sales leader. What we actually figured out is we need a basketball coach. Because now we've got, we've got Wendy, who's our VP of sales, who's like very good at getting our, you know, helping our people sell and working with them on deals and really supporting them. And, that's what we needed and we didn't know that and it took a few years to figure that out and then what processes we need and what systems we need it just takes time to build up a sales infrastructure and you know the sooner you figure out the sooner you have one and the sooner you have one the sooner you make money any advice on the way because you you obviously scaled up massively in, in a sort of two to three year period any advice on that any particular sort of learning points anything you should you should observe to to make sure that you don't fall into certain traps of committing to, to too many staff or something along those lines? I think, um, I think you actually need to spend the time figuring out your processes. And so we didn't spend enough time on our HR systems, on finance systems, for example, co-founder, you're founding a company, you're running your budget. Mm -hmm. Your budget's in a spreadsheet. And in that spreadsheet are people's pay and all the money you're making and all the money you're spending. And because people's pay are in it, you can't show it to anyone else. Okay, because you can't show your head of sales what other people is for privacy perspectives, what people outside of her department are making. Well, now we're 140 people 
we're still running a budget out of a spreadsheet and our head of sales can't run her in PL because we never built the infrastructure that she can separate out just the sales spend, just the sales um, wages. And so she's, hand, she's handcuffed running a department. Um, and so you have to, I think we needed, we, we would, if I could have done it again, I would have spent a lot more time and money and figuring out how to make our management team much more successful at being management by giving them the HR infrastructure, the hiring support, the financial infrastructure and the financial support and budgeting support so that they can make their own decisions. And that's the only way you can scale. And so we, we, we scaled really quickly and then we had to go back and fix all that. It was really painful. There's different views when I ask this particular question, but do you really think you have to be at the very minimum a jack of all trades being a business owner? Well, I think, so there's two schools of thought. There's one is, um, higher into your weaknesses and then there's one that's higher into your strength um i'm not sure where i sit yet but so hiring into the strengths means like you're really let's say you're really good at finance so you hire someone in finance because then you'll go learn the others you'll 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 let them do finance but you'll be able to understand what they're doing and you'll go learn something else yeah yeah, yeah. right and then you'll hire into that well, so whereas hiring into your weaknesses every every skill that you don't have right yeah so we just have to decide what school of thought you're on but I think jack of all trades sometimes suffer because they think they can do it all, know everything, and then they don't give enough autonomy to the people who, who are doing it, right? So I, I think you just need to know what you're good at and not good at and, and hire people and give them the freedom and the know-how to, to be able to, to run that. So, so it sounds to me like you're more on that side. Just stick to what you know and, and, and just be, be a good manager, good leader, and, and, and I guess understand wow. processes and all that sort of thing and be quite meticulous on that level, but you're really about stick to what you know, to be honest. Well, and it's not even just that it's at some point you get to the size where you're not actually doing anything. You're just helping people do things. Right. So you, you know, some size you're actually not executing, you're jumping on the big calls that you need to support or helping people through people issues or helping them figure out budget and their goals. Right. So at the end of the day, you're really just supporting You're you're a supporting cost to a bunch of brilliant people. When did, when did you go from, I guess, worrying about individual departments doing what you just said and being more of a complete overseer and just helping people in, in particular. Our, our management team rightly complained to us that we were still, a, let's call it a founder run company. We were mm -hmm. too big for that. Um, and I think that was probably, let's call it a year after go concierge where we suddenly were hundred people, right? Over in one year, we went from 40 people to add 60 people to hundred. Right. So, I think we just made a con like that. It was actually, it wasn't just subtle and like behind the scenes. We, we actually, we actually made a decision. Like we need to get out of the way. Yeah. Quite hard, to let, out go, way. Quite hard to let go. Letting people do sort of just leave them being, let them get on with it. Isn't it? Yeah. And I would say I'm probably too extreme in that. I get complaints that I, I'm too, I let, you know, it's like you actually need to support them through it. You need to actually spend time with them. I think, you know, I get complaints. Like this is, I get complaints about me all the time that I, I, I'm too letting, like letting go. It's not micromanaging. It's like almost too trusting. I don't think it's trusting. It's just like, yeah, it's, it's you. You want it in too much autonomy. Or that person with that with that faith to go. I trust you to do it. You know what you're doing. When there's still an element of you still got to be on top of them to to some degree. But then you then there are sometimes they they're afraid to come to you and how have you help them solve it because they think that you're they're meant to do it on their own and right, you know, yeah. no one should do anything on their own. So there's a fine should, they should should have a partner in the process. Um, 
So, you know, I think, I think that's a balance. Are there any brands you, um, you admire or you've looked at as, as a real sort of something you want, not want to replicate, but you see elements and, and really recognize what they've done has really helped you recognize what you need to do. I don't know if it's so much brands as I just think there are, there's some brilliant people um, and you listen to them and you listen to what they've done and you kind of learn from it. I like, I remember, you know, when we starting a company, there's the book like Lean Startup, right? That everyone should read about getting to a clear MVP. And then you get to a bigger size and there's not much for you in terms of literature. So you, you, you meet other founders and you work with them or there's a great YouTube series called Blitz Scaling that Reid Hoffman puts on around like, how do you go from 10 million to hundred million in revenue? Mm-hmm. And he brings in great leaders and speaks about it to Stanford and put it all on YouTube for free. So I would say I just learned lessons of people as, as much as you know, I, have, I don't think it's as easy to go inside and study a company, how a company works. Because what you read about a company is not really, is the nice parts. Yeah. You don't really get to read about the difficult parts because it's hard to either be honest about it or even remember it. Although I guess things like this, in particular podcasts, seem to expose it more, which, which I think is great. Um, so on that book mm-hmm. point, is there um, any favorite book? Would, is, would there be a particular one? And by the way, that doesn't have to be a business book. I'm just, just out of interest. These are some of the, sort of the quick fire questions I do at the end. Yeah, I think, um, well, so we did this weird thing at Alice. We created, we, read, we created no bonuses. So I know a lot of companies thrive on bonus cultures and set bonuses. We, we took the opposite approach. We, we didn't create any bonuses, but we went against it very intentionally. Um, almost to the point where I try not to hire salespeople with bonuses and it doesn't work in sales. Yeah. Um, and the reason is, uh, it was from a book called drive. So what drives people? And the idea was that people are driven by autonomy, mastery and purpose. And, and the idea there was as children, we solve puzzles. We love solving puzzles and people love solving puzzles, but then you pay a kid to solve the puzzle and they'll still solve it. But then next time you bring them a puzzle, and they're going to ask, for, well, where's my payment? But if you never paid them in the first place, they'll just keep solving the puzzle. So once they associate value to it, only see that value in it. So if you make it all about the bonus, people stop working for themselves. They start working for the bonus in our, in our, in our mindset. Now, the reason we're able to give no bonuses is we gave everyone equity. So they have some participation in the future of the company, right? You pay someone fairly and then you give them autonomy, like the ability and mastery, like help them become the master in their domain and they're getting a lot more than just a bonus. And people aren't working for one month out of the year. And anyone who says that that didn't work, well, we didn't lose more than five people in five years. It did. And I think there's a certain size where suddenly it doesn't work as well, or there's certain roles it doesn't work as well. Like sales is not is a very repetitive role. The art of selling is volume, and a volume-based role that commission does help a lot because it, it gives you an incentive to take no 90% rejection for that 10% success. Whereas in, in engineering and where they're problem solving and puzzling and it's more creative, like it's more process oriented. Like there's, I think you can get away with it. So drive was a great book that helped us form that line of thinking. Who was, I said, was a great book on hiring. Good to great was a great book on knowing what you're good at measure what matters. I mean, to be honest, the easiest way to learn about this is just Google, Alice book club tech crunch. Do you idolize anyone or is anyone you deeply admire in any capacity? Yeah. I don't mean that business sense, human sense, ethical sense, anything. I don't know if it's admired. I just, you know, everyone has an ego and I'd like 
to me, I don't, but I think I'd, I'd love to be considered one day a really strong technology leader and thought leader in the world. And you look at these individuals who have made it in all of these companies, right? And you read their, their autobiography is, um, and you, you know, like I deep down, I want to look back and be one of those one day. Um, I don't think there's anything shameful in admitting that. I think I, I don't. Like it's, it, I think as an entrepreneur, you you have to want to be really successful. Otherwise, what are you doing? Um, and some people want to change change the world, right? But to do that, you need to be successful in changing the world too, right? So, I think you need to be really. You have to have an ambition to be really successful, and you see that in individuals in every industry, and you grip onto them, and and you grip onto their success, and you, you started off in the beginning saying a lot of people fail a lot till they find the success. Um, and you learn from failure. That's true, but it's, a, it's, it's almost a ridiculous saying that learn, you know, fail fast and learn quickly. You learn a lot more from success in my mind than you do from failure because you learn how things can be successful and you can copy those elements, right? We're not reading books on how you don't hire people. You're reading books on how you do hire people, right? Um, and it takes a lot of not, making mistakes to get to the answer. But ultimately the answer is much more important than the ways in which you could fail to get there. I think, I think that's a great answer. Um, not that you actually gave me a specific person, but, but what you, what you sort of segued on, I think is so true in the sense of it's interesting. A lot of people I say, would well, you think failure is essential to, to entrepreneurship or trial and error? And like I said to you at the start, it's interesting that you haven't really, it's been your first start and you've done well. And I'm sure there's been a massive element of trial, trial and error within the company, mm-hmm. within the process. But I do, I have also, also often thought if I'm going to read all these books or listen to all these podcasts or get involved, the whole point of that is to, like you said, so you can be heavily prepared and be, and understand the nature of, and the need to be so meticulous that you actually may not, may not need to actually deeply fail in the first place. Um, I think, yeah, it's just, yeah, I mean, if you fail a million times every day, right? It's like what's on the, the, the headline, though, is I think is the, the successful headline, I think is more important at the end of it. But going back to, could, could you tell me an individual who you, who you maybe, maybe admire or, or idolize? Or, or, by the way, some people say that I don't. I just, I just wondered if, to know, for you, it's not about a specific person. No, I mean, I loved, obsessed with um the disney C- the former disney ceo book um bob uh bob chap uh, rob Iger. sorry bob Iger. i'm terrible with names as you see so i had to google the, the story um his book i think on leadership and obviously he's picking the best parts about his 15-year journey and it's called ride of a lifetime i was blown away by his book and and his leadership style and his approach to crisis management. Um, so yes, if you want an individual, um, and I'm not on his political views and whatever he does socially that I don't know, and for his business acumen, for his getting a deal done with Apple and at the time Steve Jobs, for his you know building a company into transforming a company from being offline to online and digital, he's incredible, and it's the best book I've ever read on being a business leader that is a little bit more fluff and high level than it is concrete tactical advice. Uh, 
this is quite a deep question, but I hope you don't, don't mind me asking. Um, when you're on your deathbed, what, what do you hope you can look back on fondly? Um, none of this. None of this. Fam family. Yeah. None of this. I, I think this is a good lesson because I, I know a lot of startup founders who haven't taken a holiday. And I don't get what they're trying to prove. Um, I get it. You, you could run out of money and you're, you're trying to keep your business afloat. But I don't think an extra day or two is going to do that for you. Because um, if it did, then you, know, you don't need five, 365 days to make a business successful. You probably need a few really good ones. And I think you're going to get that if you're more, more complete outside. And so, so none of this, I, my first job was at Goldman. I was an analyst on the, on the floor. And my, my, I remember my sister was having her bat mitzvah. I went to my boss and said, Hey, my sister, I'm at her bat mitzvah. So I'm going to go to London in a month. And she said, are you asking or are you telling me? I said, well, the truth is, I guess I'm telling you because if you told me I couldn't go, I'd have to probably resign but I'd love your approval and your understanding, but I, let's not either pretend one of us is doing this just for the job. Like I, I work to one day have family and family's the most important thing. And so yes, you have to be flexible in that. You can't do ever, be there for every moment, but if you're not there for the big moments, what are you doing? Great answer. You're doing very well on the answers today, Alex, I must say. Ladies and gentlemen, another episode of The Entrepreneur's Experience brought to you by Babylonia Media. I believe that was episode 10. Alex Shashu, co-founder and president of Alice Platform. Thank you very much for being here. It was fantastic and amazing answers. Thank you. Thanks for having me.